Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review Podcast. This is Jason L. Kuby, President and CEO of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Our guest today is Earl Buford, President of the Council for Adult and Experiential Learning, or CALE, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting adult learners as they navigate between education and employment. Prior to joining CALE, he was the Chief Executive Officer of Partner for Work, the leader of the public workforce system serving Pittsburgh and Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. Earl, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today. Can you just give us a quick rundown of CALE, its mission and its activities, and really the things that drew you to the organization? Well, first of all, Jason, thank you for having me today. Just really excited, um, exciting time to have this conversation. We're a national nonprofit, we're a membership organization as well. We were founded in 1974. Our legacy is rooted in equity and includes our pioneering work around what's known as credit for prior learning or CPL, or formerly known as prior learning assessment. We've championed CPL for more than four years and we've championed it as a way to drive college completion among adult learners. Also advocate for recognizing and valuing diverse and educational experiences, that, you know, a system that traditionally undervalues that, or, and also a system that traditionally excludes learning from outside the classroom. And so the reason we championed CPL, if you think about it, it typically involves workplace or military experiences. Pi remains the heart of our work and our mission today as a way to link learning and work. And that's really at the heart of our work. It's about education and employment coming together, learning and work coming together. You've been running Kale for just over a year now. Talk a bit about your initial experiences today. What are the things that have surprised you along the way? Most recently, I ran the Workforce Board Workforce System in Southwest Pennsylvania. Prior to that, I ran the Workforce System in my hometown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I have relevant public workforce experience. Before that, I spent 15 years running a collaboration of workforce arms, primarily labor and management in Southeast Wisconsin called Wisconsin Regional Training Partnership. I talk about those paths because every organization that I've had the chance to lead, including Kale, I'll come back to the question, are built around a philosophy in my own personal life. I'm the product of a high school pregnancy. My parents met in high school and unfortunately were pregnant me way too early for anyone. And you know how those statistics normally play out. They're normally not positive. Well, in this situation, my parents, they married and my mother went to good high school, obviously, went back to, went to college, became a teacher. My dad, he bounced around from low paying manufacturing job until he stumbled into a training program that was directly connected to a major employer. When he graduated from that program, the job at Shelf Electronics was waiting for him. He spent the next 30 years and retired. That changed our lives forever. And I call that winning the workforce lottery. So every organization I work with, every project I stumble into, or every partner I partner with is built around how do we help individuals get the opportunity to win the workforce lottery. Kale was the one organization that had all the qualities and all the assets and all the resources that I wanted in the organization to do multiple things that lead that work towards that lottery I mentioned earlier. In this case, we can really bring a higher education to that equation. In order to really link learning and work in this country, especially for meaningful pathways, well-paying, sustaining pathways, great career pathways, you have to have higher education involved and you have to have industry involved. I believe Kale gives the best opportunity to do that and it's national so it really allows to really think about how to scale well, that's an amazing story. And as you were talking there, it occurred to me that a lot of our listeners are economic development practitioners, folks who are you know, in the field working on some of these issues as they try to cultivate employers in their communities, in their regions, in their states, both those that are already there, but also trying to attract new businesses to their communities. And of course, uh, talent and workforce have become central in that conversation, in that activity. What advice do you have for economic development practitioners yeah. related? 
related to workforce development, talent attraction for their areas. Years past, kind of development did what they did on one end, workforce tried to do on their, on their end, education did their own thing on the other end, and we're past the silent approach. But with that said, I've always have felt that economic development is really the start for any meaningful strategy from workforce. So we cannot do workforce without economic development. And it's about time that people started to realize that. Fortunately, all the work that I've done has always had a connection to economic development or partnership with economic development in the variety of locations I mentioned earlier, whether it's working very closely with a mayor's office or our civic association or chambers, but it was always geared to what can we do to support development efforts, transaction efforts, economic development. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak at the IEDC conference, and the same question came up. And I mentioned at the time that once coined the phrase for work I did in years past, industry-led, worker-centered, but community-focused. The point in that statement is economic development, employers, and industry are the straw that serves the drink. I can use the old baseball term. And if we, you know, us as practitioners in education and workforce, if we don't understand that, now is time. Flip side of that is also get, make sure that economic development understands that if we hadn't thought that way before and we're supportive of their efforts and your efforts, I think we're all getting there now. It's the ample time for these different systems to sit at the table and start developing those local and regional talent attraction plans together and not just workforce is going to work with the hardest to serve, college is going to work with the higher educated and economic development is not getting what they need and employers aren't getting what they need. Those days are over. That equation is bad. They have to throw that out and start over. As technology advances, we're seeing changes across professions, across industries, with work becoming really more sophisticated, more technologically advanced. So I'm wondering, Earl, what can be done to better prepare a diverse set of workers for these more advanced jobs and drive successful employment outcomes? At the same time, you see technological advance moving in the direction of automation and also more sophisticated skills needed by workers. I think it goes back to partnerships. Education is no longer a one-and-done affair where you go to school, school, get your AA or your bachelor's. With the shelf life of skills decreasing due to technology, I think educators and employers need to remain in constant partnership to develop and ensure education training programs are well aligned to the latest workforce needs. From academic credentialing that are diverse and flexible, that are using tools like credit for learning, and bring people in from micro-credentials, stackable credentials, certificates, all those things we, you know, we all talked about. Industry partnership models are really important here where you have a cohort of employers by sectors, unions, labor management working together, educators, you know, those groups in a really formalized partnership developing the plans and also the sequencing of how this happens. There should be much more upskilling and reskilling of incumbent workers, individuals that have already worked for said industry or said leader or said company who understands the culture of said employer. So I think there should be a stronger and larger upscale and rescaling strategy within the industry partnership model. There are a lot of credentials and certificates that are developing or it should be developed for folks that are non-traditional in the workforce, but who aren't ready to leap into some of the more technical jobs. It's a real sophisticated approach. Educators and employers working together in an entry partnership model, the upscaling and reskilling, and then a backfilling methodology built around credentials and certificates. This issue of our publication is about partnerships between industry and education. You've talked about many of them already, and I know we're going to talk about a few more, but can you talk a little bit about the why? Why are partnerships so important in supporting and serving adult learners and the industries that employ them? 
the easy answer is we've all tried to do it in our, our own siloed way and that hasn't worked or it's worked momentarily, it hasn't worked on a scale or sustainability, which is why we're having this conversation, I believe. By not working in a cohesive partnership model, you're wasting resources as well. I'm a proponent of what I call a blended funding model to these approaches where there's definitely public investment. You know, we see things like the infrastructure bill and those kind of things. So those those other public investments can be helpful, but you also have private and philanthropic support. What are the ingredients that you typically see in the most successful partnerships? Are there any examples of workforce partnerships that you would point out as being particularly impactful? It's a personal example of a project I worked on that led to something really around 2008 during that downturn. You know, manufacturing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm from, where I worked at the time, we're having the, you know, the same conversation we're having now, developing talent, wanting to work together to basically stop poaching from one another, paying a dollar more for someone to leave manufacturer A to go to manufacturer B. We were able to pull together and develop a manufacturing industry partnership of about 30 major employers. We're talking Harley-Davidson, Ocean Spray, et cetera. Brought them together along with the three industrial unions, the steelworkers, machinists, and UAW. What came out of those conversations is basically an agreement that the manufacturers in that market had stopped training 20 years ago. So they stopped upskilling and reskilling at any significant level. So that was a breakthrough moment. They all admitted that, that they were willing to pay a dollar an hour or $2 an hour more to recruit someone from another company. So what happened, the genius in that conversation is they also said that they didn't like using the older apprenticeship manufacturing model because it took too long. It wasn't mm. flexible enough for any of them to bring in new talent on the backfill side. So what came out of that was development of a new apprenticeship model manufacturing called the Industrial Manufacturing Technician. The reason that the IMT is so important was there's like a competency-based apprenticeship model. So you're able to bring on someone in a traditional way as an incumbent worker. Instead of it being four years, based on their competencies, it, it was two years in scope, but because of your background, you could test out some portions of it. So it shortened the time of the apprenticeship and also gave the employer more flexibility in what they wanted to train them to train for. The third angle, which I thought was the most genius angle, was that it could also be used for entry-level workers. And, you know, that's not traditional manufacturing. The fact that they went from complaining and poaching to this breakthrough manufacturing classification that was signed off by the three major industrial unions in this partnership. So it started in Wisconsin in 2008, and it's now in, I believe, most states in this country. I was in those meetings in those rooms, and it happened. And it's still relevant, and we're still having conversations about the IMT and the related instruction and how higher education partners with that. We talk about it almost daily with a variety of employers. because It really changed the paradigm for those employers that decided to use it moving forward. Now, it's not universally used, but the point is it's there for manufacturing partners that are looking for an answer or looking for a solution. Virginia is known for its large veteran population. What advice do you have for policymakers and workforce professionals to help ensure that military veterans are positioned to thrive in the workforce after their service? I was involved in a national project with the uh, refrigeration workers and the steam fitters, the veterans and piping program. There was a point system, kind of like credit for hard learning. A veteran can come into those trades, they take a test, but all their skills are also being assessed. Sometimes you see a tendency with all non-traditional learners to focus too much on the challenges instead of deficit framing. Okay, what's the right approach to, one, make sure they understand what's available? There's a ton of veterans programs out here, and they're all meaningful, but they aren't really connected to the armed services. You can't have an onboarding process if you don't have a relationship. Higher education, employers, these organizations that are veteran-focused need to be connected to the armed services directly. Second, making sure that there's a true skills assessment. Kale directly has worked really hard on that. We helped create a, a group called the Veterans Higher Education Affinity Group. 
over the last decade, we've been able to leverage the collective voice of BHEAG members in advocacy efforts, encouraging cross-learning and development best practices, addressing issues around military benefits, military learning, things like that. That prior learning assessment was really the key to that. So I think it's a systems thing more than uh, respect. I don't know anyone who doesn't respect and, and honor that. I don't think we take enough time to make sure the systems are connecting. It's really the synergy around those the systems connecting. It's not just put a program together and we can understand why we aren't tracking enough veterans or veterans are thinking that, you know, I'm not getting enough counseling or career mapping, so no one really cares about me. Two ships passing the night, make those ships connect, make those systems connect, and that's where the good work happens. What do you think American institutions and practitioners can learn from programs in other countries? As we look at for models across the world, what are some of the other ways that educational entities and other partners can ensure they're preparing students for jobs that will be relevant in the future based on models elsewhere? Well, for one, the United States really just really acknowledging that the professional trades, that traditional blue collar work is the backbone of this country. And so valuing that is number one. Number two, also valuing that higher education plays a role in that, especially the tech college and community college systems. For the students that are pursuing a degree or other credential and you know might not get all the way there, what do you think educational institutions can do to create value for those folks that are in the system or pursuing something but maybe don't finish? I mentioned earlier this whole one-and-done model. You enter an institution, you graduate, you move on. I think that's really a thing of the past. If you think about typical mm-hmm. post-secondary frameworks, it doesn't matter how much progress students made before leaving school. For instance, if you left without a degree, you were considered a dropout. Not a near completer, mm. not almost there, but a dropout. And then, you know, that person drops out, goes to work in a field and acquires other skills. So now when they come back, they have their past academic track record. Now they have a track record of work. That should mean something. And so I just, I just really want to make sure that our education institutions are thinking about that, especially coming out of this pandemic when individuals are already having doubts about a variety of things. That's why you have record in the number of unfilled jobs, right? So you need to come up with a way that's going to track them. So where I'm really going with this is over the past year, Kale, I've had more of our member college presidents approach me through our surveys, but also individually in conversation say, help us think about our students' economic goals. What they're really saying is help me find jobs for our students, whether it's work-based learning opportunities, whether it's internship and co-op strategies, reciprocity agreements between two-year and four-year institutions. They're all thinking so differently now because, they one, they have to. It's also noted that if you don't think differently, what's the term evolve or die? Well, they're not going to die, which you get the mm-hmm. point. It's going to put a severe dent in their enrollment and completion. So it's really these partnership ideas connecting to higher education to help support them. It's innovative presidents saying, okay, what can I do to make sure my students who are investing in my institution, what's the end game for them? What's the payoff for them? What's the workforce lottery win for them? The first president who did it was, I think, the president at Carlo College in Pittsburgh. And he said, I got to figure a way to help my students get jobs. Mm-hmm. And then it's just this past year, it's been more, it's been louder and louder from presidents. Here's something that really excites me is when chambers and civic associations and college presidents start developing local plans, local talent and retention plans that deal with what you just talked about. As if there's a few out here right now, I, I, what I'm really excited about is an insult with Southeast Wisconsin called the Higher Education Regional Alliance, or HERA. They've brought all 18 institutions together, all three workforce systems in that region, and a variety of employers, their civic group, and their chambers all could come together and they're working towards things that we just talked about in the question you're asked. And I know it's happening all over this country, but these are just some great examples of how you have to think differently, how you have to be nimble to meet the needs and upskilling and reskilling needs of employers, but also have your students' economic goals in mind.
Any important observations you're making or things you're involved with that we haven't touched on already? I think it's two things. One, that the idea of credit for prior learning is just such an important tool and such an important product. Just because something is going well in another area may not be suited for you, but the idea is to come together and make these things work because you're all going to benefit from it. In the end, your workers, your learners, your students, your community is going to benefit from it because you've taken the time to align yourselves together. And in essence, that's what Kale does. We are an honest broker. Earl, thank you for your extraordinary leadership on these important issues, and thank you for joining me for this discussion today. Jason, thank you for having me. It's truly an honor. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.